Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Bassware Bites, the B2B podcast from Bassware. Hi, I'm Gareth Kershaw, your host and moderator for the discussion, in which we'll be exploring what we're loosely calling the new era of finance. How recent changes around the globe are impacting business and finance and some of the tactics organisations can employ and often are employing in response. I'm joined by guests Tim Harford and Jason Vincelet. Guys, perhaps you'd like to introduce yourselves. Tim? Sure, my name's Tim Harford. I write the Undercover Economist column for the Financial Times, present the Cautionary Tales podcast, a Radio 4 programme called More or Less, and I write books, most recently a book called How to Make the World Add Up, which is all about how to think clearly uh, using numbers and data. But I also, a couple of years ago, wrote a book called Messy, which was all about how to cope with frustration and disruption, which some people have found not uh, not irrelevant in the, the times we live in. And Jason? Oh, great, Tim. That was hard to follow. Hi, my name is uh, Jason Vincelet, and I'm the Director of Product and Business Management for North America here at Basware. And, uh, you know, essentially what I do is, is work with um, sales, marketing, customers, uh, just in general with the market to make sure that Basware is um, developing products and strategies to, to meet the needs of our finance ba- uh, departments of our customers. Um, so I haven't, read it, I haven't written any books or anything yet, but I, I, I do. There's I do time, a, there's time. There is, but I do a lot of talking for sure. So um, I'm happy to be a part of this. Thank you for inviting me. As I say, we, we've all, you know, we've all become accepting of the, the, the idea of the new normal. Um, but is it true to say, is it fair to say that um, we perhaps uh, we perhaps entered a whole new era where, where, when it comes to, to, to business and, and business finances? Or is there t- perhaps a touch of hyperbole and paranoia about that notion? Can I, can I open up with a massive piece of economic jargon right out of the gate? Is that okay? Absolutely. So, so we economists talk about something called hysteresis. And hysteresis is, apparently it's Greek, I don't know, the physicists then took the term. But it refers to the question of when you, when you stretch something or bend something, does it snap back to how it was before? So you think about a, a, an elastic band, a rubber band, and you, you pull it and then you release it, it goes back to pretty much how it was. But there's a certain point where you stretch it, you stretch it, you stretch it, and it, and it won't, at least it won't fully return to how it was originally. And that process is, is hysteresis. Uh, I'm probably mangling the, um, the engineering and the physics, but in economics it's pretty clear. Um, you might have a shock to the system, people lose their jobs and then when the shock is removed actually people don't necessarily get those jobs back or um, there's a shock that provokes people to try some new way of working some cool new technology um, that they because they were sort of stuck with the status quo they were a bit a bit sort of slow suffering from inertia the crisis forces them to adapt they embrace the new technology and then when the crisis goes away they realize that the you know, actually they love the new technology and they're going to stick with it. So that's the hysteresis is the kind of technical term for for what we might be facing. And the question is, well, are things going to snap back when the virus goes away? When we've managed it, got a vaccine, got used to it, whatever. One day the virus is not going to be um, ever present. 
will we just go back to the way things were before or will we have learned things or embraced things or made certain investments, changed the way we work in a way that lasts forever? Um, and I think the answer is it, it depends. Depends on particular sectors, particular people, particular industries. And I'm happy to talk about which ones I think will snap back, but I'd love to hear what Jason's got to say about the subject too. Uh, and I, you know, I totally agree with that. I think, um, again, I'm kind of at a ground floor level with this, you know, working with, uh, you know, uh, my current customers on, on what they're doing and their agenda for, um, you know, handling uh, the, the new era, if you will, uh, from financial pressures. I do think that it's, it's not hyperbole necessarily, but I do think that um, the inevitable change has just been, uh, you know, put to the front burner. You know, has been has sped up, um, which has created priority within the within the the, um, the companies to uh, do the take on the the needs to make the changes that they needed to make. That would have happened, I think, in some point of time. So uh, the change just happened quicker, and I think the challenge, and we'll probably talk about it a little bit here is you know were the companies prepared for this accelerated um, change and it's more of a digital transformation or change of policy um, change of handling their suppliers their payments um, i think they all everybody knew it was coming uh, on like a you know kind of a surprise attack but this this death has definitely uh, created more of a, a priority in the agenda my sense with this is that um the real question is, is the new way of doing things, the way that we've been forced to embrace because of the virus, is the new way actually better or not? Um, because I think the virus, it, it will go away in the end. Um, it, it'll take time, but but you know, we're not going to be living in fear of coronavirus for the next 10 years, I don't think. Maybe I'm wrong. I've been wrong before. Um, and I think when you're in the middle of a crisis, it for a while there's this process of denial and then you get into the point where you can't imagine it ever being over. I always feel this when I'm ill. Whenever I'm ill I hurt my back or you know I've got a really bad cold or something or I've, I've you know I've eaten eaten something I shouldn't have eaten. Um, you just feel like I, I'm never going to get better again but of course you do and then it feels ridiculous and I think one thing to watch out for is I see people saying, for example, oh, cities are dead. You know, there's no way anyone's ever going to go back to cities. Now they've realised they can work via Zoom and Skype and, and Slack. Why would anybody ever go back to cities? Well, I'm not so sure about that. I think people get pretty fed up of working on Zoom and Skype. I think there's a lot that people enjoy about cities beyond simply going to the office. So I think cities will be back. But sometimes you you do find that there is a better way um, to do things. Um, my, my the, what the fantastic study of this uh, uh, that sticks with me is a few years ago there was a a strike, industrial action on the London Underground that shut down about half the London Underground stations for uh, 48 hours. It wasn't even a long strike. And because we had data from the uh, the payment system, it's called the Oyster Card system, so everybody's signing into and out of London Underground. You know, we know where they're signing into and out of, and the same system is used for the buses, and the same system is used for the overground trains, and even boats going up and down the River Thames. And three economists got hold of this data, suitably anonymized, and were just able to see well, what happened to people's movements during and after this strike. And they found that people who made the same journey every day, you know, Monday to Friday, 
and you know we, we have a name for these people they're called commuters and then who changed their journey because of the strike they found a different way to to get to work they used a different line they used the buses and then 48 hours later they never went back and obviously most people went back most people were like well the strike was a big inconvenience and I prefer the way it was before but about five percent of people which is tens of thousands of people never went back and all you needed was this tiny disruption just 48 hours of disruption not even to the entire network and people realized they'd been doing commuting wrong their whole lives so this is a big question for me what is it that we're doing that's like doing commuting wrong and sure most of us will go back to most of the things we do we'll go back to the old normal but some things are in fact better we should have realized it a long time ago and the remote working and the other changes that have come because of the pandemic are just making us realize that and we're thinking why on earth wasn't i doing this five years ago i mean that's absolutely fascinating uh, and i I'm, I'm both surprised and not surprised at the same time if that makes any sense but what is coming through to me loud and clear here and i don't know if you guys agree but we're perhaps never going to see a return to, for the one of a better phrase, the actual old normal. We we may see a um, a hybrid of the old and new normal. Um, but on that basis, it, it it seems to me then going back to our our initial question that the you know terming the period we're now living through as a new era isn't necessarily overstating the case. Yeah, I think this is just evolution. I mean, it's a, it's a, an, like I said before, this is an, an enhanced kind of um, evolution that's been sped up. And specifically because of, of COVID, things in every industry, we, we talked uh, just a little bit of a case of the subway with uh, the Lisa cars, but we can think of every, uh, tons of industri- industries that have a psychological impact and a, a financial impact, operational impacts um, because of COVID. You know, we talk about returning to cities. I feel like there'll be a return to cities because there's a psychological need for people to be connected with people. And the Zoom is just not going to cut it unless we do virtual hugs that actually physically touch people. And I think that, um, but what's going to happen is it's, it may return. But there's going to be innovation to what happens when it returns. And I think people are starting to think of what else can I do to be better than I was before. Um, and so we have to also think, so as we, as we have an elastic kind of um, springing back to uh, the normal that we think that was before, we have to think that possibly there's actually going to be more enhanced changes where there could be uh, more of a community um, kind of feel inside of cities because people you know now they know what they were missing are going to make sure that they don't lose that again you know things of that nature or you know we talk about um, operational things in companies which is where my kind of world is you know um, as people get more digital maybe they'll even become more digital and start looking at other operations that were kind of manual that could survive in a covid world still make those more digital and automate and automatic and so I think you have innovation that's happening right now because of COVID out of necessity. But I also think that once we start returning to another world, we will we will remember our at least recent history. And we'll have other innovations and other kind of dynamics to change the way that we're working and communicating with each other and in all the processes and, and things that are associated with that. I'm very excited about what that means and what that looks like. But you can attribute to this to like what we've done in, in post-war times, right? Where during a war, there's a lot of investment in the military for a lot of technological and processes. Technology and processes. Post-war, a lot of those technologies and processes go into the kind of private sector. 
And so, but you don't know what those are going to be and not all of them transfer over. And you also don't know how they're going to be applied. And so I think what, what's kind of exciting is you know, from a futurist standpoint is to see what is going to be applied once COVID is over, how are those changes going to be? And are we going to be better than we were beforehand in some of those aspects? Yeah, it puts me very much in mind of uh, Hitachi Vantara and something its CTO has been talking about recently, the digital pivot. Um, how through necessity, organisations are now having to turn digital projects around much more quickly and nimbly and the fact that they're managing to do so. Yeah, I think there are a couple of different things going on here. There's there's uh, change uh, and the impetus to change at an individual level and then there's the the shock to group culture, a, a collaborative effort that I think introduces a further interesting element. So for, for the individual uh, level, it's simply a case of we, we get comfortable in what we're doing and we don't want to change unless we have to change. It's that simple. It's just human nature, I'm afraid, especially as we get older. Um, and I recently celebrated a birthday and, you know, I'm not, I'm not getting any younger. Uh, I, I, I spoke about this when I was researching my book, Messy. I spoke about this to the composer and producer, Brian Eno, who's worked with U2, U2 and Coldplay and, and most famously David Bowie and lots of an amazing act. And he sees himself as, as in many ways, um, the, the, the shock treatment for, uh, for bands who are feeling that they're a bit stuck in the rut and their record company is telling them to do whatever worked last time and they kind of know they're afraid to try something new. So they get Brian in because they know they can't do it by themselves. He's the one who's going to sort of push them out of their comfort zones. And he said to me, the enemy of creative work is boredom. And the friend of creative work is attention. And one of the things about having to deal with a new situation, all these new challenges, is we really pay attention. Now, we really have to focus on what's going on and what we're doing and why we're doing it. And you, th- you think about the, the, the idea of the enemy of creative work being boredom. I realized that after I thought about what he'd said, we bore ourselves a lot. We don't mean to bore ourselves because we don't like being bored, but we do like being comfortable and we do like things being the same. And so we just stick with what we know. We go to the same places, we use the same tools, the same habits, the same routines, we talk to the same people because that makes us feel safe and comfortable. But of course, at the same time, it's boring us. So the sort of shock to the system, I think, really um, can, can have a big impact on the individual level. I mean, let me just give you an, a, an example based on my own experience. I've been trying to launch a new book in the middle of this thing. And so the first thing that happened is, okay, all the book launches are, are cancelled, all the book talks are cancelled. Um, and I've launched two books this year for reasons we don't need to go into. So the first was in May, and all this was cancelled at the last minute. And, I, and they said, well, you need to uh, do a book talk over Zoom. So I bought a cheap webcam and you know, there I am and I'm sort of, you know, staring, people are staring up my nose and I talk to an audience, 9,000 people at the Hay Festival and they're looking at my nostril hair and I can't really see whether anything's going on and I'm doing my best. I think it was fine. Um, But I was just forced into that. But having thought about it a bit more, I then started to think, well, hang on, it must be, I must be able to do better than that. So I called a YouTuber I know. I said, how do you, how do you record sound and make it sound good? He said, oh, you, you just get a lapel mic. Here's a brand I recommend. They're about £60, about $100. You can plug it into a smartphone in the back of your pocket or you can plug it into a camera or into a laptop. So I can be doing a video talk with a completely invisible microphone. 
and people hearing my voice clearly. And then I said, well, hang on, there must be a better, this camera looks terrible. I mean, I look like I'm reflected in the back of a spoon. I must be, must be able to make things look better than that. I'm married to a photographer. So I talked to my wife and she said, well, I don't know. I've got all these amazing cameras, but I, you know, so we Google around and it turns out that it requires a bit of effort, but you can plug a high quality digital SLR with the, all the beautiful um, lenses into a, into a computer and make it work as a webcam if you, you know, hack it a bit. And then you've got the software and you've got the lights. And then a couple of months later, I'm doing book talks all around the world, wearing my little uh, Lavalier mic that's invisible, professionally lit from either side, you know, staring into what's effectively a TV camera. And of course, the whole thing is going on down a proper hardwired Ethernet connection. Now, the, the thing is, I could have done all of that four years ago, five years ago. Why didn't I? Why didn't I? Because I didn't have to. And now I'm doing work with people all over the world because I've been pushed into adopting the technology. In, in part then, you know, we're, we're partly saying that, that, that necessity is very much the mother of invention here. Um, absolutely. That's, you've put it much more briefly than, than I did. But yeah, we don't embrace the new technology until we're forced to. Um, and it's, I think it's going to be interesting to see what technology we, we stick with, because obviously the beautiful camera and the lights are better than a webcam. But I might still go back to speak. I mean, I, I actually was on stage in front of a live audience this morning at the Cheltenham Book Festival. So we didn't go completely virtual, I, you know, and I had to drive to Cheltenham and I had to stand on the stage and all of the, the COVID safety precautions. So we did go back to the old way in some ways. And I think we will go back to the old ways um, in some elements. But there are other things that once you've, once you've tried the new technology, you're never going to go back. Always absolutely delighted to have the names Brian Eno and David Bowie dropped into a B2B podcast. Um, absolutely, absolutely wonderful. Um, well, and indeed, you know, always happy to have the names David Eno and you know, David Bowie, um, so Brian Eno and David Bowie be part of any conversation, quite honestly, from my, from my perspective. Um, but Jason, to, to go back to you, to your good self, um, clearly, then you know we're going to see some changes in behaviours here from from businesses and from finance de departments. Uh, and based on what Tim has just said, you know, what do you, what do we think um, that, that those those changes in spent like financial and spending behaviours and tactics and strategies are likely to be? You know what? What are the what are the changes we're going to see over perhaps the next twelve or twenty more twenty four months from from your perspective? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be said there with regards to um, spending um, on the procurement side. I mean, we it was a very immediate thing to look at your supply chain and look at the risks that are associated with them, with you know suppliers that were being uh, shut down, um, they couldn't get uh, shipments overseas. And you had and, some, and buyers had to look at their secondary or tertiary supply chains, which could be mom and pop shops or you know or other suppliers that now have more business, um, and and I think that's provided this kind of redundancy in in the procurement processes and enforced procurement departments to think about that redundancy and and think about how to keep the business lines open at various suppliers 
so that they have that, um, that you know, the business, um, again, just say redundancy over again, redundantly. <laughs> so, but on, on the finance side themselves, I mean, there's a lot of going on with the financial departments to make sure that they're compliant and um, that they are paying their suppliers. Uh, we had to keep the suppliers solvent through this process. So we have to make sure that suppliers are getting paid for the goods they're providing. But as everybody started working from home, the challenge that was there was that the suppliers were, you know, oftentimes invoicing by paper. And it was going to mail. And people would have to go to their mailboxes to pick up these things and then process a payment either digitally or also by mail back to the supplier. And so that caused a lot of problems as we were kind of forced to stay at home and not go to the mailbox. And so what I saw, what we've seen a lot of customers doing is either they were recently went completely digital with this process, they were able to pay their suppliers completely digitally and suppliers are able to invoice them immediately and digitally. And that allowed for solvency, allowed for to allow the ability to reduce the risk of the supply chain because the suppliers could stay solvent and also um, I'm very happy. And so uh, and my the best of breed businesses that we've seen have been able to continue their operations if they've already done a digital transformation. And that's what I spoke about earlier is, you know, now there's a, a precipice to actually get these projects going faster because companies are seeing that they're laggards in the kind of back office transformation to get rid of some of these manual processes. Exactly what Tim was saying, we just become lazy and complacent in, in our in our in our processes. And this has really driven us to do what we what we have needed to do for a long time. The technology has always been or has been there for a while. And so that's what we're seeing. Uh, and it's really fantastic to see some of these great success stories. The downside of that is there's a lot of people in queue to get digitally transformed. And so you see a lot of these companies that can help you out. Now there's a backlog. And so what I would say is, you know, stick with it uh, and you'll get there. Well, well, it's been a great discussion so far, guys. And personally, I'm always delighted when we can manage to name check the likes of Brian Eno and David Bowie in a B2B podcast. But um, mindful of time, we're going to pause uh, right here before winding things up in part two. Um, please do be sure to download that next instalment to hear Jason and Tim's thoughts on how organisations can not only adapt to, but thrive in the new era of cash flow.